Have you ever done something where you've had to apologise? Who do you think you're talking to? Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle. Where we try to have thoughtful conversations. About awkward topics. On our search to find The Middle. announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Hi listeners. Now heads up, today we unzip some very adult themes. So if you're a bit squeamish on some of these things, you might want to take a rain check on this one. Absolutely. No offence intended, but we promise this is a crack of an episode, so please listen on if you're good to go. I agree, Roger. Let's dive right in then. What have you been up to today? Oh, nothing much. Lazy son of a bitch. <laughs> well, I've been moving houses actually, so my last week's a blur. But I kind of uh, saw something on the came, that came up in my feed, and it's probably a bit of a viral video. You've probably seen it, but um, there was a situation where someone flew a drone into like a Russian parliament sitting and it was like a helicopter drone with blades going around and attached to that drone was a giant dildo. And so it was just like this giant dildo hovering around going throughout the parliament, right? And just like taunting um, the Russian parliament. And I thought to myself, that'd be like the worst case scenario for like strong Russian men, right? Because you got to deal with this situation, right? You can't let the dildo just hover over you. So you're going to have to hit it out of the out of the sky, right? But that's going to require you to like make a choice that I'm going to have to swat a cock flying through the air with my hand, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, what's the lesser of two evils? Like show force by like trying to smack the shit out of this thing, but then also, you know, have to touch the touch the cock with your hand, right? Like what what <laughs> what would you do in that scenario? Don't they um doesn't Putin have anti-gay propaganda laws or something? <laughs> what could be more manly than a disembodied flying um penis drone? I mean, there's something homoerotic about Putin on that horse with his um, shirt off. and The only reasonable approach would be to, like, get a fleshlight, which is a disembodied vagina, and then fly that up and then try to, like, mate them together <laughs> so that they would crash land together as nature intended. But what ended up happening um, was one of the people cracked, and that's exactly what they did. They jumped up and gave it an almighty Russian slap from the patriarchy, and the drone went flying down to earth. So, Roger, for, for my benefit and our audience's benefit, can you explain a fleshlight? Oh, yeah, a fleshlight. So, um, this is something that's kind of probably after our time, I think, Andy, if, if we're honest. It wasn't around when we were teenagers. Uh, but <laughs> apparently it's a... You just didn't know where to get one. A cultural <laughs> phenomenon. Um, that, you know, Amazon wasn't up and running as well back then. <clears throat> All right. I, I think we'll get, I'm going to stop that Stop that here. Uh, <laughs> Google it if you're if you're curious. No, no, I, I think we can. I think uh, we can treat our listeners as grown-ups here, because th- this is actually okay. Let me get into it, because this is a real double standard. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to no. think of you getting into no, a flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call out the double standards on our side when we see it. If you, if a woman tells you, you can be any kind of woman throughout any part of society. It is totally socially acceptable to have a vibrator of some sort or a sex, like a dildo, a vibrator, anything like that. That is not frowned upon. And you can thank things like Sex in the City and other things like that to break that barrier, right? But you're not thought of as some kind of pervert or creep or whatever it is, right? But if you're a, a man or a boy and you buy a fleshlight, you're thought of as some kind of like pervert, like close to some kind of pedophile, right? And it's just not, it's actually a real double standard that we should be, um, we should be fighting against. Now, let me be clear, I do not own a fleshlight. <laughs> After saying all of that. But you know how on uh, aeroplanes you have to um, take any, anything with like a battery with you in your hand luggage? So, my question is how many flashlights do you think get put in like airport bins because the passenger is too, is too embarrassed to, um, to put it in their hand luggage after being told that? It- They're just too realistic, aren't they? I mean, it's a, it's a bold move to take one um, <laughs> like on a, on a trip. And take it for carry-on. but uh, <laughs> For use in the bathroom toilet. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, but don't, don't you think it's a, it's a real double standard and, and actually there's nothing, there's exactly the same as having a vibrator or dildo, which is totally acceptable for, for women to have. In fact, I think it's like an empowering, empowered thing. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that other than to say that I don't think men have views about women having dildos and I don't think 
women have views necessarily about men having like whatever men have, right? They absolutely do. And I can tell you that because if you had one, you wouldn't admit you had one on air right now. And a woman would have no qualms with, you know, proudly saying that they, yeah, they're empowered and they, they have a vibrator. Well, I mean, now it's an even stranger world, right? Because you could be, you know, you could be a, a trans woman and then... I wonder whether they'd make you buy like a women's line of fleshlights, right? That just has like a pink cap, but it's actually just a, you know. Well, we started this um, series talking about bananas and um, now we've we've really uh, stepped up a gear. I know, you know, because fleshlights are usually straight as well, right? So if you were curved, isn't that kind of like a shapist view of the uh, sex industry that, that straight is the right shape, not curved like a banana? You know how like for phones you can get different cases? Do you think they have different skins and stuff for Dude, they have um so so number one, you can buy a mold of your favorite porn star. And there's like a big industry. So all the, you know, proper porn stars have their signature line. And then you can go even crazier where it's a disembodied alien vagina. And it has like it's like blue and greens and fluoros and has all sorts of weird shit going on. Like for people who who are have fantasies of having sex with extra extraterrestrial beings and things. It's like it gets pretty deep. It gets pretty deep. And there's stuff like there's, you know how when you go into, you used to be able to go into a service station and they had those um, poles that the, the buns would stay on for hot dogs where they just like punch a hole in there and keep it warm. They have the equivalent of that for the fleshlights apparently that, to like warm them up so it feels more realistic. Can you imagine um, like some like future scenario where some porn star makes like that the mold and then without realizing it, 20, 30 years down the track, the son of the porn star, like, accidentally <laughs> comes across. That has to make the cut. That is like, <laughs> that's the kind of thinking that is going to take this show forward, all right? <laughs> that is amazing, amazing. Like, cross-generational. Is that is that incest? But yeah, look, I, I think that, look, it, it, it probably is. We probably do have a few things to, you know, ceilings to break in terms of male sexuality. Um, when it comes to that kind of stuff, right? Like, you know, that that's, a, that's something that shouldn't be shamed. And I think that it's no different from having a vibrator. To be fair, I think when we're talking about like cultural factors, I think, you know, maybe things like dildos are, and sort of being free to talk about women's sex toys and, and the like, it's as much come from activism around women being sexually liberated and yeah. being able to talk about this stuff openly, whereas for centuries um, their sexual needs were kind of suppressed and you know i mean men have had the upper hand and and even today and and even in certainly in in some cultures um women's sexual needs are kind of well down the list of priorities you know with things like female genital mutilation and stuff like that so i i think a lot of that stuff is born out of like an activist approach to speak openly and push the boundaries so you know whereas there would be many women who would be as equally I'm reluctant to talk about um, what they do. To be clear, I think the boys will survive. I'm not. I'm not saying that this is this is a deal breaker, but I do think it's a a deal, you know, a deal breaker or a, a deal dough breaker. I, I know what you're going to ask me, so I'll just kind of cut you off at the pass. To be honest, I'm more curious if you have a dildo. I, I have a dildo. Why would I have a dildo? Well, you need to massage the prostate every now and then, don't you? <laughs> All right, this has gone way too far. Let's cut it off. <laughs> All right. So shit. Sorry to interrupt the episode. If you're enjoying our content, make sure to hit subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you never miss an episode. Let your friends know about us. Your support means a lot and word of mouth really helps. A great way to share with your friends is to comment, engage, like and share some of our social media posts. We're on all major platforms and you can find our links in our show notes or our website www.themiddle.site. And guess what? We've got even more for you. We're building a subscriber email list so we can give access to content that you can't get any other way. Check our show notes to find out how to get added to our subscriber list or visit our website at www.themiddle.site. Thank you. And we'll return you now to the episode. All right. So what are we talking about today, Andy? Have you ever done something where you've had to apologize? Oh, man. <laughs> Who do you think you're talking to? You know, it's my favorite one, though. It's the drunken apology. And it's like, you know, when in The Simpsons and Homer has that notepad of like his apology notepad that he has to apologize for things when he's drunk that he doesn't quite remember. I have a few of those that are quite traumatic, right? Like, because I feel like when you're young and you get drunk, you're just funny and harmless and, and fine. But then you, you start to get a little bit older. And when you get really drunk, like blackout drunk, you just wake up the next day in total fear and panic of all the things that you've done to like ruin your friendships and said 
horrible things and you've just got this long list of apologies to to kind of make up for so i have a few of those memories and when you did have to apologize how did you do it were you aiming for sincerity or were you trying to explain away your behavior well i think in, in that's in that scenario it's like quite philosophical in some ways because you don't remember what you did but you know it was bad right because like you've caused damage to to property to people to emotions so you've know you, you know you've done it but it's like some other version of you that wasn't in control so yes it's like a, it's one of those weird things where like you don't remember it you know you did it and and yeah you do feel you do feel sorry and and mixed in with shame and all sorts of things i don't know where else in life you can have that experience of apologizing for something that you don't remember doing and actually mean it that's an interesting question then can you really even mean it if you don't remember having done it yes it's it's tough right like it's it's kind of like if you have evidence of doing it maybe (laughs) like a broken glass or something but it does raise a really really good question about is the apology for you or is it for the victim right and like in in what ratio and what does it matter right like does what does what does an apology even serve i think all apologies one way or another are for the perpetrator right really i mean we don't apologize for things where there's no consequences or no benefits from us doing it it's not in our dna right there's no altruism behind our apologies usually it's usually a oh, i've got to restore things back to equilibrium so repair relationships if i yeah if i just say i'm sorry we'll get it back to to normal and that doesn't take away from necessarily the apology because it is even that itself is like coming to the conclusion that you need to do that and that you were in the wrong and that this isn't the time to make your case for why you were right and that you just need to concede that no you were wrong you apologize you you messed up or whatever but really the motivation you're doing it is because you care about the relationship and that relationship is important to you and you and you want it to get back on a and even kill but i guess if you didn't care about the relationship or it was some stranger or maybe there's like the polite sorries when you bump into someone or sorry you know which might be you know is that even really an apology as opposed to you know the equivalent of a please or a thank you i see what you mean that it is self-serving in some ways uh even if that self-serving nature is aligned with making someone else feel better but i would say that apologies can help the victim to um feel better oh yeah absolutely definitely and that well it's only for that reason that there's any merit in apologizing in the first place, right? But if it didn't benefit the victim, well, then they wouldn't be extracting one out of you. I think people say sorry for a lot of different reasons, some conscious, some not. Like, for example, people feel sorry because they feel like it could be a preventative measure for retaliation. Um, they could say it because they genuinely feel bad and they want to stop feeling bad and they want forgiveness to do that. Um, and all, all range of things in between. Like, I think where it gets really interesting is like, do you really have to feel genuinely sorry for it to work? And I, and I think the answer is probably no. It has to be perceived that way. Um, and this is the complexities with um, you know communication and dealing with two parties, right? But in the really, really true sense of an apology, right, it's very, very, very rare because most people don't change their mind. What people are doing, like you said, is only feeling sorry that the other person's hurt, not really feeling sorry for something they said because they still believe it because it's so hard for someone to change their mind in everyday life. Well, I mean, isn't the the key test of that? I mean, if you're truly sorry, then whatever the thing that has occurred, that person wouldn't do that thing again. And invariably, I mean, you mentioned like the drunken night out or whatever, and all yeah. the fallout from that. Part of a genuine apology would would be a commitment that, well, actually, never drinking again, not drinking again. Yeah, but that, but then inevitably, that's that's not what happens, right? I'm not saying you you personally, but how many. Other people are in, in that situation where they have they, they get drunk and then they do silly stuff, they apologize, and it's almost like, all right, uh, who's bringing the beers? You know, that kind of thing. I blame you know, the, the uh, next week, I, right? I blame the Catholic Church for <laughs> this idea of confession and then starting all over again. I want to go to sort of the maybe the public side of this. So we've talked a little bit about drunken nights out and having to apologize after various things that happen during those, but what about like the public as a collective feeling it's owed an apology when a public figure does something wrong? Like, you know, we've seen examples of comedians maybe doing something or saying something you know, a little bit below the belt or, you know, a politician messing up or whatever, and, and the public feels it's owed an apology. H- how do you feel about like the outrage train? Like, do we have a right as the public to really feel that way? 
I think that we we expect a lot nowadays. The good parts of this is, is the the responsibility and accountability, right? Like free speech also means that you need to be accountable for your words, and that's a good part of this. But I don't think that you can really expect to change people's point of view, right? And it goes to our first point of like, you know, they don't mean it. This is all just public relations at its heart when it comes to public figures. That's that's what PR is. So a, a good example would be um, New South Wales ex-premier Dominic Perrottet, who recently had to publicly apologise for dressing up as a Nazi on his 21st birthday. Now, of course, you know, he probably does on some level feel bad about that and even probably worse about what it's doing to his career prospects. But do I want that apology and, and do I think that I deserve to have that um, as one of his constituents or whatever? I don't, I don't think so. So it, it does raise a few things. I mean, where do, you, where do you lie on this spectrum, Andy? The notion that um, public figures owe you anything is, is itself sort of a questionable practice, I guess. Yeah, often the apology is self-serving in that it's to restore some sort of public reputation that they need to continue to be successful. So I actually don't know if Michael Clark apologized for that street brawl that he had in Noosa. Um, this is the f- uh, former Australian cricket captain had some wild, um, I don't know if it was a brawl, but it was certainly a, a very ugly spat with his partner in Noosa. And it was like, unfortunately filmed by on smartphones and released to the media. Some people can handle Noosa, some people can't. I don't know if he publicly apologized, but in that situation, for anyone in the public to feel that they're owed an apology from Michael Clark for, you know, I mean, he, he might owe many, many private apologies to the people affected, but probably not to the public because the public really involved, but he may nonetheless feel mm. an obligation to say some sort of public comment about it in a very simple, you know, ap- yeah. apologetic tone because he's got contracts with broadcasters to do, you know, commentating and sponsorships and all that sort of stuff. So it's, yeah. Well, look, it's- it, w- so, so what it comes back to, and I think, We've spoken about this in other episodes. You apologize to someone if you've offended them, right? And the problem is nowadays that offense has become its own complex, its own industry. And every single level of offense in society has now been elevated to a really important level. And so I think that under that scenario is like, you know, it's no one's business what kind of domestic spat Michael Clark is having. But if someone was offended, and I'm sure they were, then he has to apologize for it. And I think that's the mentality that's taking over which is, you know, interesting. I mean, I guess there's also this, you know, emerging thing of like people kind of identifying with their tribe as as being, well, if I don't take offence to this, then that somehow weakens the bonds and the connections with my my community, my friends, my peer group. And so I also need to like jump on that bandwagon and that has this sort of, you know, this vicious cycle of like, you know, you have to be more outraged or as outraged as the person next to you. And yeah. sometimes like we all f- probably forget, well, hang on, why are we outraged in the first place? Sometimes there's like, it, you know, that's not quite like that. Like the public figures genuinely really do owe an apology, you know, potentially to the public as well. And I think politicians probably a different, slightly different example yeah. because they're, you know, I think they are- Public servants, right? At the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And, and they're in a position of- great privilege and, um, you know, they're only there to help and they're there for service. So, that, that's maybe a little bit different. But uh, yeah, I mean, like- did um, on, that, on that subject though, Andy, did Kevin Rudd ever apologize for hitting that strip club? I think he did. He, he emphasized his apology to his wife. But you know what, like just to um, contrast or not so much contrast, but maybe the similarities between, because you mentioned the former New South Wales Premier- and uh, and his 21st birthday uh, fancy dress costume and Kevin Rudd and his um, visit to, I think it was Scores Nightclub in New York, uh, a strip club. Actually, you know what? They, they both have very similar experience. I mean, completely different things to be po- apologizing for, but very similar public reactions to their apology. So, I think in both cases, the public respected and appreciated the sincerity of the apology and- could also project themselves into that situation and almost imagine how when they were in an equivalent situation yeah. have done the same thing. And I think given the sincerity of the apology and the it actually almost rounded them out as well, public I figures. Don't know if it was the Yeah, like I mean I think it, there was some value in them owning it and getting in front of it. 
but I think it, it did round them out, but for other reasons, right? Because I think at the end of the day, they're both glasses-wearing nerds, right? That's the presentation, and this kind of gave them a little bit more of an edge, um, especially for Kevin Rudd, right? He presents as a very geeky, slightly intellectual kind of guy, um, idiosyncratic maybe, and the idea of him partying in a strip club was like, oh, well, maybe there's a bit of bloke to him after all. So I think that was actually quite endearing on his behalf, and I think in Dominic Perrottet's case, it was just like, man, you're 21. At, you know, this is, you were drinking. You, what were you going to apologize from drinking from a yard glass next, or you know, throwing up and losing control on your twenty-first birthday? Like I don't know, you know. So you know what I don't understand is like the flip side of all of this is that the public absolutely love a good apology, like especially an apology that's perceived as really sincere and even beyond what the actual original offense was. Yeah, that that the public lap it up, and it's almost a thing that you could do something wrong give a really good apology for it and the public will have a more favorable view of you yeah. than what they did before you messed up. Yeah, so true. Apologies from public figures and especially public servants, politicians and things are lapped up. And, um, but I think that's a liberal democratic kind of thing, right? Like I'm sure that if uh, Putin was to apologize for hitting a strip club, uh, he would definitely lose face from um, and reputational damage, right? But yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to it, right? So on the flip side of this, I would challenge that anytime a public figure is apologizing, they have not really written the apology themselves. And doesn't that ruin it for you? I was going to raise that given the opportunities available to someone in apologizing, as in, you know, fr from a completely selfish you know, point of view, there's so much to gain from a good apology for a public figure and a private figure, a private individual for that matter. Why do people persist with these half-assed apologies, right? You know the ones I'm talking about, the ones which like the I did not have sexual relations with Miss Lewinsky and, you know, I regret that the public, you know, misinterpreted my actions. Why not just do the I'm deeply sorry, I feel ashamed, I have not met my commitment to you and for that I will never, you know, all that sort of stuff. Like that's the kind of stuff. Like, well, you, I, I you think you can get away with it. I think that's, that's the reason. I think it's I think it's got to be deeper than that. It has to be pride. People just can't concede, right? They they want to maintain that veneer of like I did not do anything wrong. Apologizing is hard, and it's because you're admitting you were wrong. And I think that's really really hard because at the core of that concept means that you've changed your belief, you've changed your understanding. It's very easy to apologize, like you said. But it's very very hard to change what you believe. Right? And I think that's why people fight against it at that level. Now, we're not, obviously, we can get into the realms of psychopaths and things that can really fake genuine apologies and, and all those kind of manipulation techniques. But for someone to really apologize and, and they're admitting they were wrong rather than just saying, I'm sorry that you misinterpreted me, that's a, that's a totally different thing, right? So just to come back to what you said earlier, where you said, you know, it's not written by the, the public figure, right? It's like this PR drafted. It's a PR playbook. Yeah. If someone has the sense to like go with it, what they're advised and deliver it, but it's not just like the words, the utterances, it's also like the way it's delivered to. I'm not so sure that it's like, because you, you asked like, does it, does it make it hollow or does it take it away or whatever? I yeah. can't remember the words you used. That doesn't completely like kill it for me because at the end of the day, like if a person's standing up and, and saying those words and they're authentic and they seem sincere, then I think often what happens behind the scenes is the people who sort of help with the drafting of it. You, usually what they're doing is saying, well, is that really what you mean? Is that, what you, is that actually what you're trying to say? So it's like when there might be a form of words which, you know, maybe seven out of ten people will perceive it in the way it's intended, but maybe three out of ten will perceive it a different way. So, you know, people behind the scenes can help out with, well, no, don't say it that way. Let's say it this way so we can be 100% clear and, yeah. and people will all get the same message and take the same thing out of it. Sure, there might be like advice, you know, public affairs advice, you know, what you really need to do now is apologize. You need to get on the front foot. You need to, you know, so sure, some of the motivations to apologize might, might be influenced, but the actual words themselves, whether they're written by the person or they're written by a speechwriter, like, I don't think that necessarily bothers me, like, or it takes away well, from an apology for, from my perspective, like, if, if I'm hearing yeah. it, but certainly the sincerity of it. But this is the problem, though. You obviously probably feel that you have a very good perception and read on people, and you could probably tell whether they're being authentic or not, right? 
well, maybe not. <laughs> well, that's what that's what you like, and, and I fall into that camp too. Like, I, I have the perception that I can cut through it, right, and I can I can perceive it. But there's a problem with that, right? Because everyone has a different radar on it. And um, I'll give you I'll give you a really good example. So at a company, a few companies, and I won't kind of single out anyone um, in my particular industry, uh, have had their, a really big Me Too reckoning over the last, let's say, three years. And there's been quite a lot of scandals of sexual harassment, inappropriate behavior, sending dick pics, propositions, you know, all sorts of indecent proposals, all kinds of stuff, right? And so there's definitely a PR playbook to it. And if you are telling me that there's it's come out that a particular executive has a long sorted history of harassing women, indecent proposals, sleazy behavior, all this kind of stuff, and then they release a pre-recorded video of them feeling really bad, a little bit glassy-eyed, apologizing, I've learned, I've done this, I've done that. Come on. They're sorry they got caught. Like, this is really the tipping point that's going to change their behavior. You know, like, that's what I mean. Like, it's a PR playbook. Get out, get in front of it, unequivocally, you know, be sorry. Show the jury, so to speak, that you're, you are suffering, you're punished, you're in your own purgatory, you're pu- being punched enough, right? A couple of tears, a couple of, you know, whatever it is, right? And I think that's the bit, that performance of it all really sickens me, right? Well, yeah, but the the difference between that and other kinds of apologies is that the reasons that you've given that make that apology hollow and vacuous isn't because a PR person's involved, it's because that person clearly has a track record of not giving two flying fucks. And then suddenly now they've changed their mind because they've got caught. It's hardly a, a genuine change of mind and reflection of one's behavior, right? And that's the case whether a PR person's involved or not, right? Yeah. But I guess maybe where those factors aren't at play, right? If you have, well, usually it's politicians because they've all got, uh, you know, staff working for them to, to do just, just this, right? If a politician did on an isolated, like a single screw up, right? And they apologize for that. And yes, they've got input from, you know, their political staffers or their, you know, media advisors, their speechwriters, whatever. That to me itself isn't problematic because the intent of, of that public figure is to, yeah, I want to own it. I want to say, yes, I did the wrong thing. I messed up and I want to give a sincere apology. Yeah. But if it turns out that like the person's, you know, has a long pattern of behavior and, and it's, it's just, um, you know, precipitated the apology because they've been caught, then that's that's the context that makes it less respectable, I guess. Yeah. I want to dig in a little bit on something that I mentioned, and it's going to be a little bit controversial, um, but I'll say it anyway. And this is this idea about apology as a form of suffering and a form of like atonement, right? And there are two main culprits that use this manipulation technique, either consciously or subconsciously, and that is kids and women in the form of crying, right? So I think that if we start with less loaded one with kids because, you know, they're they're innocent, they will defensively cry when they're in trouble to essentially reduce the punishment, right? Because they're already in distress and your natural response is to not stack on punishment while they're obviously crying already, right? And so that I would put that in the maybe the unconscious category. They're not like these devious little Machiavellian creatures most of the time. It's it's a response. It's like a, a coping mechanism. But I know for a fact that women use this technique to essentially get them out of trouble, you know? And they, they may legitimately feel like the crying may be legitimate, but it's actually something that they can call upon while they're saying sorry or apologizing or looking to get out of a hard situation. What are your thoughts on that? Rather than treat this as a like a specific thing that kids or women do and specifically the crying aspect, I think this can be generalized as a, a strategy of like flipping things, right? And I think we all do that. I don't think that's unique to women or children. Like I think that's like, like just human behavior, right? So like an example of how a man would do it might, to give any, another example is they might say, you know, I you're coming at me for this thing, but I feel that I can't communicate with you properly because you shut me down all the time and you keep saying that I'm telling you the wrong things and I can't feel like... I'm heard in a you know in a relationship or whatever, and it's just it's just sort of like it's a subtle kind of turn of the situation of like you should not be holding me to account for this thing, right? And you holding me to account for whatever the thing is is the thing that is actually the problem, not the thing that I did that led to you holding me to account, but rather 
you holding me to account is the problem, right? And yeah, it's a tactic, right? I, I, I appreciate, I applaud your efforts for trying to steer it away from a gender thing. <laughs> but I guess what I'm talking about in this scenario, and that's why I mixed in kids there too, that I think it's, and there's a whole chapter on this in like the tears of the white woman kind of thing, right? We, we're, we're kind of softening this landing, but it's not a flipping it into a bigger issue, right? Which is a, 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 like a technique when I suppose arguing with someone is actually about showing your suffering. It's like, I'm being punched enough, right? Like I, I am sorry and I'm crying and I am, you don't have to punish me. I'm punishing myself. I'm so sorry that this is the punishment. This is your gift. Like I'm doing it for you. And I think that's like, you see it on jury stands, you see it, you know, in public apologies, a lot of, you know, and you see it in relationships and other things like that, a lot of different ways, right? And I think where I'm, where I'm bringing it back to is apologies in some way are about suffering. It's about punishment and suffering and atonement for your sins, right? And that's why I think sometimes people can mistake a genuine apology because they perceive the person giving it as suffering. Like if you look going back to that Dominic Perrette example, one of the reasons that I think a lot of people thought it was very genuine is because he seemed to feel so bad about it, you know, like really like kicking himself down, right? And so it's like, oh, he is hurting about this. It means something to him. It's really affecting him and therefore it's genuine. And I think that's the part that's really hard because you don't really know what's going on in someone's mind. You don't know if they're feeling bad about the outcome of it or actually the fact that they've hurt people or whatever it is, right? Or that they would let themselves slip up in this way. Um, and I think that's where I'm a little bit more, you know, careful about these things. Well, there's no doubt about it that if you want to describe what is meant by sincerity in an apology, that the sincerity of an apology is, like you say, that feeling of suffering or that feeling of genuine, Punch. I do feel bad that I've done this thing, whatever it is. And I think that's the reason that feeling of suffering is a signal that as humans we uh, grab onto because- you can't always fake it, right? There's some people who can fake it. Yeah. But, but like maybe um, to give like, you know, when you, you've got kids, right? And you say, ah, oh, say sorry for doing that thing. And they say, sorry, you know, in a very, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no. And you've got to explain to, to your child, it's not just saying the word, it's the way you say it. That's yeah, actually train more important you to fake it word. better. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Because it's, and even that's like part of, sub, you know, you have to submit to what I'm demanding of you now. Like you have to submit that I'm making you go through this and it's yeah. not going to be on your terms. It's going to be on my terms. So it's, it's funny about the, the kids thing and, and forcing them to apologize when they don't mean it, right? And like, there's, it's a very divisive thing. Like parents feel very strongly about it, um, doing one or the other. Um, it's much more of a new age thing to be like, oh, well, if they don't feel it, don't force them, right? But I read this study that they did with very young kids, I think kind of three-year-olds. And um, they had this example of two kids playing in a sandpit and one essentially was making a sandcastle and the other, the other kid came and like knocked over the sandcastle and then, you know, making them cry and so on. So they forced the kid that knocked over the sandcastle to, I guess, apologize, right? And what they found out from repeating this experiment was that the apology uh, never really helped ease the distress of the kid of the victim, right? So the apology kind of did nothing to help with the victim's pain. But when they recreated the experiment and they they kind of convinced the victim, the kid that knocked down the sandcastle, to help offer to make the sandcastle back together, that did kind of help the distress of the um of the victim. So that's kind of in a very crude way, I suppose, saying reinforcing that it's not really the apology; it's the is the act of making good on the apology. Yeah, that whole thing of like forcing kids to apologize, right? It's sort of a way to emphasize to the kids that they've done the wrong thing, right? So it's it's that learning process for young children to, you know, to learn that don't do that thing again because I'm going to make you do this thing so you really realize that you did the wrong thing. And it's 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 part of like the the flow of learning and and even within relationships, a partner sort of compelling you to I expect an apology for the thing you did in some ways is set like setting a boundary to the partner. So they might not even like the actual apology itself may be immaterial. Right. But if nothing else, it sets the boundary of my expectation is that you don't do that thing. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, like the, the apology itself is actually quite transactional. It's not, it's not actually about feelings or anything like that. It's actually about 
this setting boundaries and and yeah. the repeated game of, of of the interactions that that you have with other people and and that the child has or the partner has or whatever. So not to yeah to kind of one up this, but I guess because I have multiple kids, they fight all the time, right? And it's very very common. It's a very common occurrence that they'll be hitting or pinching or some kind of grievance between two kids. And you have to say, oh, say sorry to your brother, say sorry to your sister. And they'll do exactly what you said, where they'll be like, sorry, sorry. You know, like, in, in a, obviously they don't mean it, they're just meaning it. But then it gets to the stage where it's like, um, although they might say something like, I hate, I hate him or I hate her. And you think, oh my God, like, how do you turn this ship around, right? Like, how do you teach them that? Yeah, it's not saying sorry. It's actually the concept of this is like, you should care about someone. And it's just this really tough task to actually say that, you know, you should feel this way about your brother or sister and you should do it because they are family. You know, that is a really tough concept for a kid to get. It's like, and, and teaching them and modeling that and that empathy and care is one thing, but actually when it's not there and they're not feeling it, it's very, very hard to force. All you're doing is really <laughs> teaching them to fake it. And like, this is the socially appropriate thing to do. Like if you step on someone's toe, you have to say sorry because it hurt them. Right? And you have to try to express that pain and hopefully a little bit of mirror neurons will kick in and empathy. But like I, I've been in situations where literally one child has done something to another, the, the other one's in tears or in visible pain and there will be just like zero empathy. There has been nothing. It's just like the fact that they're distressed and crying will mean nothing to the other child. Right? So it is like, it's a tough thing that, that I think develops through maturity and, and other things. Right? And then people have different dispositions on this stuff. It's very, very hard to fake. So, I mean, using this as a bit of a segue, right, because we talked about like the insincere apologies, I- I'm, I'm going to throw out a few different variants of the insincere apology. You can't say variants anymore. That word's cancelled from code. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Was Someone will be offended and oh, then okay. you'll have to say sorry. All right. Um, but don't worry, we can pre-record something. <laughs> I'll help you script it. So, I'm going to run through a few a few of the common ones, right, and I'll run through them all and then I'm keen to, to hear your, your views after. So, um, the first one is... I'm sorry you feel that way. The second one, I regret blah, but the term sorry is not, not spoken. The mm. third the third one is, I'm sorry, but here's all of the reasons I did what I just did. And, you know, yeah. trying to explain and justify the the action. Yeah. Look, I think I think where, where this really hits, and it probably will hit for most of our listeners, is that um, it's kind of like in spousal relationships and um, romantic relationships where some of this stuff can really bite, right? Um, when you're living with someone, arguments are going to come up and all this stuff, right? And it's, it's tough to navigate because you want to be heard and you want the worst thing in the world is when your partner is upset at you for something that you didn't mean, right? And you genuinely didn't mean and it was conveyed wrong. So you want to obviously, and you do feel bad that you've hurt them, but you also want to try to explain so that they go, oh, okay, like that's that's not what you meant and I took that the wrong way, right? And like, and I think that's the that's a really hard bit because you need to have both, right? Um, and we've we've spoken about this in a more general sense about in in our race and white privilege episodes that how sorry do you genuinely need to be to get to a place where you want to change things in the future? Now, I think everyone will cringe at most of that list, to be honest. Like to say, um, I'm sorry you feel that way, right? Because we've all done it. We've all, there's not a chance. It's like someone looking us straight in the eye and saying, I've never had diarrhea in my life. <laughs> you just know it's not true. Like we've all used that line before because it's just intuitive. Like, and, and sometimes it's your, it's, it's the most that you can concede, right? That's, that's all you, that's all you can give at that period of time, right? Like you're, you're also white knuckling, you know, you're, you're angry and all, all you can say is like, I'm sorry you feel that way, but like, I will be damned if I'm going to apologize to you for something that I didn't do. Right. And I think that's the emotion that, and that's the inner voice, right? And that, that's a tough spot, man. Like sometimes you might just need to pick it up later, but we've all said it. Like every single one of us have used that at some point in time. It's funny how you framed that around, you know, relationships and, and the like. Uh, I don't know if, um, I mean, we've talked, to, we've talked before, you know, one of our previous episodes about reality TV. And if anyone out there has watched the Australian version of Married at First Sight, you just see all of the worst behaviors that are known to mankind like and and you just the worst bit is like yeah no one ever can give a good apology and like the the the, the blokes are the worst right so it's it, it is it is that's one thing that it is like the men on the show are absolutely worse than than um than the brides but i guess um 
yeah, it's just like there's there's virtually no apology given that isn't laced with all these caveats and <laughs> and whatever else. And um, the other thing to say about it is it, it's good watching um because it makes you feel a lot better about your own it's relationship. A lot less and, dysfunctional. Yeah. But what about this one though, Andy? It's adjacent to that list, right? And it's probably maybe a fourth where you know, like men sometimes thinking a little bit analytical, but sometimes you know, like women do this too, and they're just like, oh, I can foresee the future of this conversation, right? And I don't want it. I don't want us to spiral and then have the silent treatment. I just I just want this to end. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say sorry and then you'll say sorry and then we'll just get over it. And like I want to shortcut it. I don't want to have the conversation, right? And sometimes women will do this, sometimes men will do this. It's just like I'm prepared to just give you a full, I'm, here's the blank check. I'm sorry about everything. Like I'm sorry about being born. I'm like I'm sorry about everything. <laughs> Can you please just say you're sorry too? And then if you don't get to that equilibrium of you're both sorry and you both apologize for some small concession, then it just blows up to a whole nother level. Wow. <laughs> but I've seen that kind of happening a lot as well. It's like, I don't really care. I just want us to both say sorry, kiss and make up and go on with our day. Well, other variants of that is one one person saying, this is getting out, this conversation is getting out of control. I, I don't want to have it. I want to just leave to let things calm down. And like, I just want to stop talking right now. We can come back together later but that just basically being essentially a tactic to achieve the same thing which is like i just want to end like end that thing yeah, yeah. right but then it's like oh no but this is unresolved you know yeah. walking away or going to sleep angry yeah right, i think that's like one of the one of the worst things too right like and people have different tolerances for it like some people just they won't sleep all night other people will sleep like a baby yeah <laughs> but, like, you know. but back to i mean you you sort of used a few words like analytical and i definitely think you know i mean we've we've talked on the show before about differences in you know men and women and like absolutely surely on average men are more analytical than than women when it comes to these things right so what you know it's like and and that always has like a tension right because yeah like men are trying to sort of rationalize everything and come up with no no let's set out the options let's consider all the different factors we need to that you know of the situation we're in let's analyze you know yeah. who you know who did what who did what and why and you know whereas you know for women that's kind of like the worst you know and i'm sort of sorry i'm saying like on average so you know i'm sure we're not all the same but yeah. um and we play know, the roles we're given sometimes too right certainly on maths anyway right mm -hmm. the you know the women on on a show like maths for example they're always sort of seeking like they're not actually seeking like an answer they're just seeking like recognition of their feelings or something like that and that's something that like that the men struggle with because first of all they don't feel that way themselves so they can't really empathize they don't have it you know you mentioned you know mirror neurons they don't have have the mirror neurons to have the theory of mind of that's not how they would be or act or experience the situation so they don't necessarily know that, that that's how to respond and um and these are you know often guys who've never been in sort of a proper long-term relationship before either so they haven't sort of built yeah. up the they had to choose either. between um six-pack abs and a meaningful relationship <laughs> that's right. and they made their choice but yeah like if i would if i had to make a caricature of what you're talking about i would kind of be like you know i think that this is also a, a preference in communication where women sometimes on mass on average will preference weight around their individual experience and men will preference weight around the logic used to, and the rationale used to get there so a common thing may be like i'm just telling you how it made me feel all right. Like that's it. Like there's no, yeah, I feel what I feel. Right. So whatever you think happened, this is, this is how it made me feel. And, and men will be like, well, like, how did you get from what I said to feeling like that? And actually I want to have that conversation. I want to, I want, cause I think within that I can correct some of your illogical fallacies. <laughs> and never, call, you may not, ne never call a you woman may illogical. Like that. that's, uh... <laughs> You're acting crazy now, baby. Um, but that's the thing, right? So men are interested in like how you got there and like, how did, how did A plus B equals C? And women are like, I'm at C, so can you please stop trying to tell me it's D when I'm fucking feeling C? Just listen to me. I'm not, I'm not, you know. And obviously, there are extremes in that of where, like, you know, things got very misinterpreted, or someone's habitually misinterpreting something and carrying something over. And there are other times where men have got it wrong too, and there's something in the middle. But I think on mass, I see that play out a lot. And when I and in the most dysfunctional relationships that you hear about in the lunchroom and all this kind of drama stuff, it's always some version of that communication breakdown. It's like, this is how it made me feel. The guy's like, well, you, 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 you're kind of barking up the wrong tree because that's not what I said. And it's just that on repeat, 
nonstop. Maybe to um, round this out and, and close this conversation on apologies, I think we should talk about the other side of it, which is forgiveness, right? And like we talked a little bit earlier about how apologies are often for the benefit of the perpetrator, right? An apology is something that the perpetrator does to make amends and to feel good and and you know get back to normal or whatever, but that's all contingent on them being forgived, right? Because if there is no forgiveness, then you know the the perpetrator doesn't get what they're seeking from the apology. So yeah, what's your views on on forgiveness? Are there circumstances where forgiveness should be withheld? How should someone who's been a victim treat uh, an apology if if they don't quite feel ready yet to forgive? Yeah, I think it's like the cause said, right? Forgiven but not forgotten. And I think um, between those two uh, words and the connotations behind it, I think really is where this sticks, right? Like, can you truly undo something? And is it really your choice of whether you can give someone your forgiveness? You can say it because you value the relationship and you genuinely are fatigued and want to move on and move forward. But if you carry those um, that trauma and, and the kind of whatever it is, then you're not really forgiving them, right? It's something very heavy and mindful meditation about starting again, starting every moment as a genuinely new moment. That's the skill and it's near impossible. It's near impossible, right? Um, so I think that it's very, very hard for someone to truly forgive someone. I remember, th- and this is getting really crazy now because this is going back to my indoctrination as a good little Christian boy in Sunday school. But um, one of the things that was going around at the time must be some newsletter they teach all the Baptist churches. But they had like a like these kind of childhood learning experiences. So basically, we're all imagine us all like very young kids, you know, five, six, seven year olds in this kind of classroom in Sunday school. And the teacher, which is not really a teacher, just a volunteer member of the church, usually a woman, would come up and she'd have a piece of um, a piece of paper, right? And she'd like scrunch it up into a ball, and then she'd she'd give it to give it to one of the kids and said like smooth it out, make it straight again. And so they spent some time and did their best and did their best and they got it to a stage where it was flat again. And then she's like, hold it up. And she's like, see, this is, all these creases are your sins. And no matter how much you try to smooth it out, you can still see them. They're still there, right? And only through God can he wipe away those creases and give you a new sheet of paper. And it's the same thing. <laughs> so as horrifying as that example is to teach like a kid that you, you're sinful and there's nothing you can do, it's also a metaphor of when people sin against you or when people perpetrate against you and you're the victim. Each of those leaves a mark on your soul in some ways, right? There's a crease there and you can iron out, you can pretend you're all good, but it's still there, right? And like, it just depends on how big the crease is. So I think that, you know, like you have to be mindful of that. And this is the whole idea that sometimes it's about the perpetrator. It's like, okay, finally I can move on. They've forgiven me. But really, you know, you have to be mindful that they may just want to forgive you. It's interesting you framed the meditation side of things because in the context of meditation, the the notion of, you know, every moment is a new moment, that's actually to the benefit of the of the person undertaking that philosophy in life, right? Like the benefit of of taking that view of the world is that you separate yourself from all of the other noise that can affect you in a negative way going forward. And I think the analogy then to forgiveness is that forgiving at like genuine forgiveness, right? And I think what you're speaking to is that you can say you forgive someone, but does it truly mean you've let go of all of the- yeah, have you done the work to- Yeah, have, have you genuinely it. got there, right? And, but I guess, um, let's say you can flip the switch and there's no work needed. It's an easy thing to choose to do or not to do, right? As a general principle- like it has to benefit the victim, right, to forgive because it kind of means that it, it, this thing that's happened to them isn't hanging over them. It's a new sheet of paper. A new sheet of paper, right? As though it never happened almost. And indeed, the only way it can affect someone going forward is if they're still hanging on to it, right? It's the meditation thing, right? That's what mindfulness is. It's living in the present moment. All you have is the present moment. Don't be a slave to the past or be lost in the, what could happen in the future. And that's probably the skill set or the mental workout that you would need to be able to get better at a skill like forgiveness is through some of that practice and meditation that we're not really taught, right? We're not really taught. You're probably just thrown in as a 10-year-old on the New York subway and then just have to the next day get over the fact that some old guy showed you his wang. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the case of the family who had, oh, I can't remember the name, but anyway, there's, there's they've got a foundation and everything now, but 
there was basically this family and there was a, a, a driver, I think he was on drugs or something, and he killed, I think, three children. Uh, and they were all from the same family. God. And, you know, three kids, like, that's just huge, right? But I think the parents uh, of one of the families, because I think there might have been some cousins involved or something, but anyway. And so, the parents, like, owned this thing of forgiveness, right? And they made a real point of saying, we forgive the driver, right? I think that was them owning some space in the in the tragedy that it was, right? And I, I almost feel like taking that stance, that benefits them in that they've shown the fortitude as individuals to make the best out of a shit situation. And there's something really powerful in, in being able to do that. He, he was judged manslaughter though, right? Well, it wasn't murder, but it was- like it wasn't yeah, intentional. Manslaughter, right? And he's under the influence. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah. I guess where I'm going with that is that if I'm thinking about those situations, it is as much as, you know, this is absolutely, like you said, freeing. It's the true freedom from negative thought is doing this. But in some way, like you need that person to be punished, right? Because it's very, very hard for humans to be satisfied with life if they feel that life is fundamentally unfair and unjust at its core. And that's the problem with forgiving people sometimes, that you want to, but you feel that if you did that, that person, that perpetrator, would get away scot-free. They would be relieved of the burden, and they don't deserve that. That's not fair, right? So for in that example, right, if they had a choice of saying, I forgive you and I'm not going to press charges, versus you're in jail now and you've paid for your time and I, I now forgive you. Like that that is where the idealism like hits the road, I think. That raises a really interesting sort of discussion around retribution, right? So, I guess with the, the you know, our justice system, right, it's probably got a few different purposes. One is to prevent people from doing the wrong thing. So, you know, I'm not going to steal this candy bar because, you know, the, the cops might catch me or, you know, do something bad to me or whatever. But then, you know, the other element of it is also this you know, this sort of notion of retribution is some sense of like an eye for an eye, right? Yeah. It's the scales of, of justice, right? The blind scales. The notion of retribution is one of those really pernicious aspects of like the human psyche, right? This desire for it, which has probably served us over like millennia, you know, in, in an evolutionary sense. But going forward, it's like it's that, it's that thing that we've got to, I think, shed going forward in the next, like if you say what, yeah. what in the next couple of hundred years is a value that we'll, we'll evolve from and, and get better at. I think it's kind of maybe having more empathy for why sometimes people do really bad things. And it, let's say, I mean, you, you, we, we sort of started this conversation because you, you sort of asked, is it, was it, you know, it was manslaughter, right? It wasn't murder, but even murder. Sometimes people murder people for the wrong reason, but actual like reasons that you can kind of empathize with, right? If you, whether it, they had a really bad upbringing or, um, they never really got off the ground. They never, you know, maybe they're on drugs, whatever. Like, there's always something to explain. And then that that retribution piece, if you sort of take away this idea that someone's in control, like if, if people can't control the thought that comes in their brain when it comes, they're like, what's the point of retribution? I mean, sure, you want to like lock them up so the rest of us are safe. You want to, you know, discourage other people from doing that thing. But the notion of retribution just seems a little bit hollow if- um, you can see that people aren't really fully in control of themselves. Yeah, it's a very interesting concept. I mean, I've watched enough true crime to to know that the family members of, vict- of murdered victims can only really move on once the sentencing, and that's why it's called sentencing, right? Um, that justice has been handed down. We are not the descendants of pe- people who turn the other cheek. That's just that's just not how it would have worked, you know. We are we are the descendants of an eye for an eye, and and then some, right? The fact that we're, we're here is testament to that in, in a lot of ways, right? And I, and I agree with you, that's the past and we need to find a way into the future, but it's, it is tough, right? Like, I mean, it's life and, and you need to, to stand stand up for, for yourself and things like that, right? Like, I mean, one of, what really resonated with me was some of this idea of like murder and being able to understand motivations as well. Like, I don't know whether you heard about this case that happened, got quite a lot of airplay because it was a former UFC champion called... Um, Andrew Tate. He wishes. Cain uh, Velasquez. And he actually is in jail because essentially he shot uh, and killed a, a man who molested a four-year-old relative of his. 
So essentially, he he killed a pedophile, or well, he, he he attempted murder on a, on a pedophile. Sorry, he didn't kill him. And yeah, I mean, like it doesn't get any more clear cut than that, right? True empathy would be like forgiving that perpetrator, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. There, there's definitely um, definitely a long way to go on that. A lot of this stuff comes down to you know one's view on like free will, and if you sort of have a view that yes, people do make decisions about what they do, and therefore they should be accountable for those decisions, then I guess that brings the need for retribution. Uh, it, it gives it a, a, like a foundation to, to exist on. But free will is a bit of a fiction, right? It's a perception. I mean, free will is not really real, is it? We don't decide what thoughts come into our mind. We talked earlier about like some, you know, being drunk and doing silly things when you're drunk, right? I mean, people who are alcoholic, for example, can't really control that they have that feeling and that urge to have another drink and then all of the subsequent things that happen like in same with with drug addiction and all of this stuff if you then can kind of take yourself out of the frame of thinking that like people just decide to do bad things right and you and you reframe that as sometimes people have an urge and can't control those urges to do bad things and they don't really control or decide. It's just this is just what they have to do because of whatever. Then it takes the the value of retribution out of it. And you might still want them in jail for things like, you know, protection of the public, safety, disincentives to other people from doing whatever the bad things are. But retribution suddenly becomes a bit hollow. Yeah, I think it's one of the more extreme versions of this argument, right? And because at the end of the day, um, our whole justice and our legal system is dependent on free will and personal agency and responsibility, right? Because if the moment you, you, that breaks down, then you can't punish anyone because they're not in control of their actions, right? Well, you can punish people. You punish people for different reasons though, right? It's not punishing them because they did bad things and you want to feel better about it. It's punishing them because if you don't punish them, then there's no consequences for actions and that will mean that basically you have chaos. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, I could take a kind of similar line, a similar concept and, and you know, they talk about this idea of you can't choose what next thought you have to an extent. So we talked about this idea of miscommunication and apologies and stuff in relationships. I think it can be really applied there in a more kind of local and less controversial way is that if someone says to you in the work setting or in a romantic setting, like, I don't understand, or or they, they don't get something that you say. It's like, you can't take that personally. Like, that's not their choice. If they if they literally do not comprehend something, or they come to a different conclusion that you intended, it's like, there's no malice behind that. There's not, you know, like, that. that is, they, in some ways, they're not in control of that, right? Like, if someone does, and, and it's funny, because I see it all the time at work, and so many people get frustrated at it. It's like, why don't they understand? Like, it's easy. It's like, they're not choosing to not understand. It just It's just their mind, right? It's just how they are. So this is an episode about apologies and, and forgiveness and that sort of topic. Now, like we're from obviously in Australia and it's particularly timely at the moment to consider the, the apology as it's sort of termed it here in Australia, which was Kevin Rudd uh, in 2008 ap- apologizing for the stolen generation, right? Uh, on behalf of the people of Australia and certainly on behalf of the Australian government. And at the moment, we're having a national conversation about a proposed Indigenous voice to parliament. And I think this is like a topic that is a lot deeper than what we can cover as an addendum to this particular episode today, but one that we want to sort of cover in a bit more detail uh, in in maybe a future episode. But I guess, uh, Roger, is there anything... uh, maybe superficial you wanted to say about the uh, apology and um yeah and and how it might fit in yeah like i mean talking about how an apology is delivered i think kevin rudd was definitely the right spokesperson for that i couldn't imagine uh, tony abbott doing it well just as an um, aside um we were talking about speech writers and things like that <laughs> if there was a a speech that was workshopped by everyone in government that was one of them I'm pretty sure, like, whatever created that speech went on to become ChatGPT. I mean, none of my stuff is really superficial, Andy, but I would just say that um, uh, Timberland and One Republic's um, Apologize single that rocked the charts actually came out in 2007, and then shortly after, in 2008, Kevin Rudd did apologize. So it's actually never too late to apologize, in my opinion. Karaoke? Won't even try. 
Do you think we'll get a strike? I'm, I'm willing to take the risk. <laughs> the AI robot will be all over us. <laughs> <laughs>